You have tuned into the Voice of Medicine, the medical podcast filled with remarkable stories, first-hand experience, important research, and valuable life lessons. Open your mind, relax, and enjoy. Dear ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of The Voice of Medicine. Today we have a guest from Australia, uh, William van Hippel. Bill is a professor of psychology at the University of Queensland in Australia, and his work and research is dedicated to social psychology, gerontology, and cognition in general. Bill and I will discuss topics such as leadership, stereotypes, attitudes and behavior in healthcare, self-deception, physiological activity and productivity, and intergroup positivity, outgroup negativity. Bill, um, so h- human beings are always part of a certain sort of a uh, social system, and it doesn't it doesn't matter if it's uh, a, a private one, so you know, family, friends, or if it's a professional one inside a company, if you're a part of a team, or um, especially in you know our sector, the health sector. Um, if you have, for example, you know, nurses, doctors, and physiotherapists working together in a department, um, and all these systems are governed by certain laws, which are usually, um, you know, they're, they're social laws or perhaps also corporate laws, and they all are influenced by morality, which is one of your research subjects, and you worked with that a lot. Um, could you tell us a little bit how morality influences social interaction? Well. Morality serves a variety of purposes. On the one hand, it's a social coordination device. And so we all agree that these are the set of rules that we should all follow. And so, and, and we um, internalize the idea that if we don't follow those rules, that we're bad, that we've violated something very important. And so in every society on earth, even though there are slight differences in the moral rules, if you violate a moral rule, that's a a major transgression. It's not like jaywalking at a traffic light when there's no cars coming. It's an important problem. And there's lots of variability in the exact nature of those moral rules. But at a fundamental level, they follow the same basic principles like uh, not doing other people harm, treating other people fairly, being loyal to your group, these sorts of things. And so moral rules ensure that we all understand what we're supposed to do, and they also play a really important role in ensuring that we actually do it. If you compare human morality to chimpanzees, for example, they, if they had moral rules, which they don't, it would just be one, and that would be might makes right. And so if I'm stronger than you, I can take your things, and you, don't, you might not be happy about it, but you, you just accept it because that's actually the single rule by which society operates. But in our society, of course, we've long since moved past that, And although sometimes might makes right, by and large, most people on earth would say, well, no, you can't just take something just because you're stronger and because you want it. And so morality serves a great coordination role for especially really large groups, but even for small groups. And it also ensures that we're on the same page working toward the same goals. So what happens, for example, if you are a part of a or a, you know, corporate culture and you've been taught certain things at home which are supposed to be good, and if you do them, you are a good person, but then let's say the corporate um, um, rule um, makes you go to the other direction. So there is a conflict of of moral values. What happens then? Yeah, Yeah, that's difficult. So 
even in the case of moral rules that that are in the same context, they can still abut against each other. So I can have uh, beliefs in autonomy, but also beliefs in connectedness. And those two things will tend to to butt heads, right? I can't have too much connectedness without losing autonomy. I have rights of liberty, but I also, you have rights to not do you harm. So when my actions, my liberty starts to cause you harm, then my rights are curtailed. And of course, the same will hold when you cross levels. And so it's very often the case that although the fundamental moral rules are the same, whether you're at work or whether you're at home, the ways that we enact these rules and the relative importance of those rules does vary. And so it's a conflict of interest at work if you help out a family member, but it's just a natural expected thing that you should do at home. And so, the, of course, people understand this. We're really good about shifting across moral levels, but sometimes it really bothers us. And we think, you know, this, I, I understand that I'm not supposed to do this at work, but it's, or I am supposed to do this either way, but it, it either engaging or not violates some fundamental principle that's more basic than what's required at work. And then people can get in a real bind. They want to do the right thing. You know, one way to think about it is a lawyer who knows their client is guilty. Mm -hmm. They want exactly. to defend the client to do the right thing, but they also are bothered by their knowledge. Um, the same thing holds in the medical field. You have a, a client, a patient who's in severe pain and doesn't want to be here anymore. How do you, um, what role do you play in that process? Exactly. Or for example, especially in, uh, you know, when you look at aesthetic surgery, maybe you have, sometimes you have people who want a certain procedure to be done on them, which makes no sense. And even the doctor sees that there is, you know, there is um, contraindication and they, well, but down the line, the patient is also the client. And if he wants it, yeah. well, he's going to get it somewhere. So um, I understand yeah, what you mean. And not to mention that it's also their right to have something even if you personally don't think that they should, right? So who are you to say that I shouldn't have cosmetic surgery um, for the 12th time if I want it for the 12th time? And so it's, you, you could try your hardest to talk me out of it, but in the end, I'm an autonomous individual who should be allowed to make my own choices unless, of course, I've got some sort of damage that prevents me from doing so. Absolutely. Uh, Bill, you also have done um, a lot of research on self-deception. Um, and when I read about it, the first question popping into my head was, uh, what exactly is self-deception? So how did you, how did you guys define it? Um, and I thought about these, you know, it's, it's a classic cliche uh, example when a, I don't know, 50 or a 60 year old, um, you know, has a birthday cake with the 35 on it. <laughs> so uh -huh. no, I'm not aging, a complete denial. Right. Or does right. it go? Does it go into a, a different direction? And you also, uh, I think, um, you were discussing that there are positive aspects of self-deception. Sure. So, self-deception is is when you deceive yourself, when you tell a lie to the very person that you want to believe it, which is yourself. And that seems impossible. How could I both tell the lie and believe it? Mm -hmm. Because you'd think that in telling the lie, you would know it. But of course. It, it's more complicated than that, and it rarely involves something as extreme as telling the lie and trying to get yourself to believe it. Now, it does happen. So uh, Ramachandran, for example, has a famous case of a prosopagnosic patient who has uh, damage. She has, um, in her case, paralysis that she denies. And so she um, – or anisognosic. I'm sorry. She's not prosopagnosic. She's anisognosic, so she's denying this, this paralysis. And her, um, her left arm doesn't can't move. And he says to her, well, take your left hand and touch your nose. And she goes, sure. And she picks it up with her right hand and touches her left hand against mm -hmm. her nose. Now, if you 
if you think about that for a moment, you'd recognize that she's both telling the lie and believing it. Because if she, if she weren't the one telling the lie, she would just struggle to raise her hand and be surprised that it doesn't move. But the fact that she's telling the lie, she's using her right hand to move her left hand, rec- shows that at some level she recognizes that there's a problem here. But the mere fact that she would find that persuasive at all and think that he would find that persuasive is also evidence that she's come to believe it herself. Now, there's obviously... In a case like this, you've got brain damage that underlies how something like that could happen. But we all do this all the time. The example I like to use is that we all like to think of ourselves as more attractive than we really are. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we all come to believe that we're more attractive than we really are. Not necessarily all of us, but almost all. And how do you know that? Well, think about the last time that you saw a candid photo of yourself. You know, not that you didn't pose for it, just a candid picture somebody took that you liked. Chances are, if you think about all the candid photos of, the, of you that have ever been taken, you think nine out of 10 are terrible. You're like, oh, that's a terrible picture. I, that's not a good indi- likeness of me. But the reality is that is a good likeness of you. It's just that in your mind's eye, you've come to believe that you're a little bit more attractive than that because you prefer the picture where the lighting is just right and the angle is just right. And so you come to have this sense of yourself you know, that's a little bit unrealistic. Now, the question, of course, is, well, why would you do that? Um, and Robert Trivers proposed the answer to that uh, actually in the foreword to Richard Dawkins' book um, 40-some years ago when he proposed that, you know, because deceit is fundamental in animal communication across the animal kingdom mm-hmm. and in humans as well, of course, that you could become more effective at deceiving others if you first deceive yourself. So if I believe that I'm stronger than I really am, that I'm better looking than I really am, that I'm smarter than I really am, then when I approach some woman who really should be doing better than me, I believe that I'm better than me. And so I believe maybe I can maybe talk her into it. I see myself as Bill plus 10%. And so maybe that's good enough to get her to agree. If you and I come into conflict and you could easily thrash me, if I look really confident, you say, well, he doesn't look like much, but he sure seems confident. Maybe I should let it go this time. And so the beliefs that we hold about ourselves transmit to other people and even though self-deception introduces inaccuracy in our self-beliefs with all its attendant costs it if we can get others to believe in it as well if they we get them to accept that inaccuracy then we benefit despite the costs so are people who are very good at deceiving themselves um you know it's sort of like a training so if i believe everything that i am trying you know i'm, I'm telling myself um is there also a proportionality that I'm better in, in making other people believe that I am really, I don't know, smarter, more attractive and so on? Because you also have people who, who they're trying very hard, but everybody sees through them anyways. So it turns out that if you, so there's been a lot of studies, if you start with, for example, overconfidence, there's lots of good evidence that when we give people an objective test and then we ask how they performed, people who think they performed better than their objective test indicates actually perform, actually convince other people of that fact. Mm -hmm. So they become more popular over time. They're more likely to be the group leader. And so their overconfidence actually benefits them in these social settings. Now, you're right that when we detect overconfidence, we don't like it. But in actuality, we're very poor at detecting it. Every once in a while, it's clear and we get it. But um, Richard Roney, for example, has a lovely study. He's at the University of Amsterdam where he shows human resources professionals interview hundreds of people who are... um, uh, trying to get a promotion. And they and he finds that the ones who are more overconfident are more convincing to the HR professionals that they're better. So the HR professionals do see some do see some people as overconfident, but most of them they don't. They think that it's accurately calibrated ability. And so they rate the overconfident people more positively. 
So these are even people who are trained to try to decide who's mm-hmm. eligible for a promotion and who's not, and they can't tell overconfident from well-calibrated confidence. So even the professionals are struggling in, in detecting uh, yeah. the yeah, fake right. ones. Okay. Are there, is there any type of a person who is um, more um, susceptible or more prone to self-deception? Is there any correlation in, in personality, etc.? That's a great question. At this point, we just don't know. Mm-hmm. So we've, um, uh, we've run a few studies in the lab where we try to see if we'll get people to self-deceive and then if they're more persuasive later. We've, we've found that effect. Um, some people in the Netherlands also, others have found that effect. But none of us have been able to identify, so then who does it and who doesn't? Because not everybody does. Mm-hmm. We find that the more you do it, the more persuasive you are to others. But at the same time, not everybody does. And so is it that you are just not very good at believing your own lies? Is it that you feel that it's fundamentally cheating and so you try really hard to be honest with yourself and with others? Or is it just random? We And maybe next time the roles would reverse and some of the non-deceptive people would become deceptive. We just don't know. But it's a great question. Jumping ahead into a, into another topic, I, I have watched, you know, over the past few years, what, let's say, misguided policies um, and also maybe, you know, bad government regulations, um, sh- sort of a short-sightedness um, due to um, healthcare. And um, I can also see what certain ideological and, and, and political movements are doing to research. Anybody who, you know, who is sane in their mind and, and values research a lot for what it is, it's, it's a way how to gain uh, knowledge and actually uh, make sense out of the world as it is, is not happy about it. So did you encounter any kind of problems in your research or in your career with, with this that you had to fight against some ideologies? Yeah, we do struggle with that a lot. So mm-hmm. in my own case, I'm a social psychologist, which means I study social interactions. And the social psychologists tend to be very left-siding. They're you know, and, and like in the U.S. political system, they would be Democrats mm-hmm. um, and not Republicans on average. And in fact, almost all of them, not even just on average, but the, the bulk of them are. And as a consequence, they don't really, they tend to dislike evolutionary explanations for human behavior. Because if you're, a, if you're somebody who wants to make the world a better place, and then if somebody else comes along and tells you, well, maybe there's a genetic basis for prejudice, or maybe there's a uh, fundamental evolved tendency toward hierarchy. Well, you don't want to hear that because it makes it harder to get rid of prejudice mm-hmm. and harder to get rid of hierarchy. And of course, we're all susceptible to how we want the world to be. And that shapes what we think it actually is. So we've, uh, for a long time, even though I was very interested in evolutionary explanations for behavior, I avoided doing research on that topic because I would I was sure it would upset my colleagues mm-hmm. and that they would not be as accepting of my work. But once I had established my career, I thought, well, now's the time that I should start doing this work that I really want to do. And since then, I've found that we've even done some work where we survey fellow social psychologists to find out their attitudes toward evolutionary explanations. And lots of them really don't like it. Now, down the road someday, I think that'll go away. But where we are now is an interesting case where people on the hard right often, not always, but often don't like evolutionary explanations because it conflicts with religion. And people on the hard left often don't like it because it conflicts with how they're, what their goals, what they'd like the world to be. And so we're sort of... You cannot make it right for anybody. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, only enemies, no friends on either side. So I see it's, it's, uh, it's a struggle probably for everybody. And, um, 
there is a lot of research exactly in evolutionary psychology and 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 a lot of theories you know they they sound very consistent and people are are trying to to get to the bottom of it and of course there is no single gene which explains you know this or that behavior but for, in in my personal opinion it it is not smart to uh build barriers in research um asking the right questions and and finding out the answers right um Agreed. now through social media um we are these days more connected than before um you know we got the technology and um this probably changed human communication rapidly um now you also know a lot about that um and i would like to know from your personal perspective how does social media and the, the new modern means that we have change intergroup relations uh communications inside groups etc well social media is a really interesting example because in some ways it's brought us exactly back to where we used to be in an ancestral world 10,000 years ago so before the advent of agriculture which is about 10,000 years old people lived in very small groups that that a couple people switch groups every so often but the larger group from which they switched in and out of was always the same and so you very rarely in your life did you encounter someone you literally didn't know except in the context when your group happened to meet a very different group and that could be a very dangerous context so it was in friendly situations you just didn't encounter strangers they were family kin distant kin or people that you'd known for a long time well once we invented agriculture communities started to get larger they started to get stable and eventually that led to cities once you have cities now suddenly you live in a world of strangers and now you're interacting with people maybe only once and you'll never see them again and that opens up all sorts of opportunities for the dark side of human nature so if i'm sociopathic and i know i'll never see you again i can take what's yours i can be mean to you i can do all sorts of things so long as nobody else is watching and so in our ancestral world you wouldn't get away with that very well because everybody would know and and there'd be a lot of gossip about you but if i come home and say i met this guy in the grocery store and he's a real jerk well i don't even know who to gossip about you know the person's gotten away with mm-hmm. it and what social media has done quite interestingly is brought us back to that old world and you can see both the positives and the negatives of that there's some real big brother qualities to it where somebody will tweet something offensive or put something on facebook that's probably in poor taste and then everybody piles on them and really trashes their reputation and so you can see the costs but at the same time you can see the benefits and uh many companies actually rely on these sort of reputation buttons and so if you want to rent a home from airbnb if you want to take an uber car if you want to do any of these kinds of things both sides rate each other and that guarantees that i won't mistreat your car if you give me a ride it guarantees that if i rent my home to you you won't treat it like a garbage can because if you do no one will rent their home to you again and so it's returned us exactly back where it used to be where if i borrowed something of yours you knew me i knew you and you knew exactly how to find me if anything went wrong and now even though we don't know each other and in fact i may travel thousands of miles to stay in your home and never see you i still have a strong incentive to treat it properly because it otherwise my reputation will catch up to me so social media is really interesting in the way it's broadened our um social context but it's also um, made them deeper in the kind of ways that it used to be not always cost free but nonetheless in a way that does get people to behave themselves so is the feeling or the information that somebody might be watching me or is watching me enough for me to behave better to to behave myself is it is it really that yeah. simple it's it's really that simple it's really quite impressive that we care so much about reputation mm-hmm. because 
their reputation determines what people will be willing, the kinds of contacts they'll be willing to have with us. And so, and we even care about reputation in the context of people that we barely know, because we know that, well, maybe someday I may barely know you now, but who knows, someday I may be your neighbor and I, and I'll want you to like me and all that sort of thing. And there are people who don't, uh, who don't really care. They just pretend to care. But even those people like sociopaths, they, they have to maintain their behavior when everyone's watching because otherwise they'll be in trouble. And so it's human nature to care a great deal about reputational consequences. And in fact, there are a number of nudges right now, the sort of behavioral economics nudge approach to changing behavior that rely very simply on, instead of asking you the kinds of things we traditionally do in private, just asking those same kinds of things in public context, where we know others will see your answer, and then people's behavior suddenly falls in line, and they do what they ought to do. And sometimes even for their own best interest, you know, controlling their own health, for example, exercising more, eating less, etc. Now, um, I'm sure that not everybody uh, who is listening right now um, or later um, understands, you know, a lot from social psychology. Could you explain us quickly what nudging is? Sure. So nudging is that there's a very famous book that uh, Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein wrote called Nudge. Thaler won the Nobel Prize in Economics in part for this work. And what they argue is that you can sometimes get people to behave in really great ways, not by forcing them, but with a little tiny push, a nudge. Um, one of the most famous examples is that in some countries in Europe, for example, if you, when you get a driver's license or some other ID, you can tick a box and agree to be an organ donor. And about 15% of the people tick that box and agree to be an organ donor. In other countries, when you get your ID or driver's license, you can tick a box to opt out of being an organ donor. And about 15% of the people will opt out of being an organ donor. So 15% of people are box tickers. They care enough to either get in or get out on either side. But what that's telling us is the 70% in the middle just doesn't care that much. Mm -hmm. They'll neither opt in nor opt out. Well, if they don't care that much, why not set up a system that automatically puts them in? Why not set up a system where we'll have that many more organ donors? Because they don't seem to mind. We can let them opt out. Similarly, when you take a new job, and you can opt into a retirement plan or opt out. Why not make people have to opt out? Because that way that 70% who don't really care will do the right thing for themselves. They'll maintain a retirement plan, which they wouldn't necessarily do otherwise. So it's a little bit paternalistic, but it still gives people freedom of choice. It just designs a situation to nudge people's behavior in the direction that you as a government would want, or as a fellow citizen would want them to move. Now, I also, I also saw that you studied um, attitudes and behavior in healthcare specifically. Did I, did I get it correctly? Yes, that's right. Tell yeah. us something about that. Sure. So um, we're, our, our particular interest in healthcare surrounds what are called implicit attitudes. So they're not necessarily attitudes that you are, have control over. They're your more automatic attitudes. And so uh, I might have uh, a conscious attitude toward ice cream where I'm a little bit negative because it's fattening and I don't think I should eat so much sugar, but I might have an implicit, an, an automatic attitude that's all grab. I really want it. And, and they can be the same, those two attitudes, or they can differ a lot. And we're particularly interested in the domain where they differ. And that tends to be domains where you would feel guilty if you held a negative attitude. So for example, let's say you have a negative attitude toward your own clients you're a doctor, you're supposed to be looking out for them and you're supposed to have sympathy for them, but they may be difficult clients to cope with. And so you might have some negativity toward them. In our case, we work with alcohol and other drug um, medical health workers, uh, nurses and physicians who 
work with drug using clients and they, they want to help them. They've chosen to do this job. They obviously have sympathy for them. Sometimes at an implicit or, or automatic, almost unconscious level, they hold some sort of negativity. And so we found that those attitudes, for example, implicit negativity toward your drug using clients can predict whether you're going to quit your job and, and move into another area of nursing mm-hmm. because the, sometimes their, their lives are somewhat chaotic and it can wear you out. And the people, what they say consciously doesn't predict as well as what they say on these implicit measures of attitudes. And uh, we're doing further work where we look at, for example, uh, beliefs about recovery. And so you might at a conscious level believe, well, my drug using clients will recover, but unconsciously you feel worn down and you just don't believe it anymore. And what we're finding is that that predicts not only your tendency to quit, say, I just can't do this job anymore. It's like, you might call it even helping fatigue. Um, but we also think it might predict, we don't know yet, we're, we're at the front end of this particular one, but we think it might also predict whether you communicate that in subtle ways to your clients mm-hmm. who then sense your pessimism, even though you're consciously don't feel that way, and then they don't do as well. So your patient would more or less feel, okay, um, you think I'm going to um, relapse anyways, so why, why am I bothering yeah. here with you? Yeah. Okay. And I also thought... Yeah, you as don't you... believe in me, how, how should I believe in myself? Exactly. I also think this would be a, a great way how to, um, you know, um, preventively uh, work around uh, the topic of burnout, right? If you can, through implicit uh, um, intentions, realize if somebody's perhaps, as you said, on the verge of leaving, um, being completely worn out and done with this, uh, that you can, you know, um, help them before they they get to the uh, um, to the level where it's unbearable yeah. for them. That's right. And so we know from previous research that uh, sometimes when people think they haven't made up their mind yet because they consciously haven't decided, their automatic attitude show the direction they're already going to take. Mm-hmm. And so that would be a great point of intervention. And of course, sometimes there's nothing you can do, right? So maybe somebody's burnt out because they, they're only one part of a small, or one small part of a big machine and whether, for example, a drug user can stay off drugs. But when they're done with them, the person still has nowhere to go. There's, there's gaps in the services. And those kinds of service gaps can make it though, even if I do really hard work and I get my client to good shape, now they can't find a job and they don't have a house and they go back on the streets and they end up you know, sleeping on the couch of a drug dealer. And that's that, right? They're back to their old life. And so that can cause you to burn out too, because you can say this, I'm doing my best, but the system isn't supporting me. Mm-hmm. And in cases like that, well, there's going to be very little we could do, but there are people who maybe we could shift what they're doing or provide them with other opportunities that might be able to give them that optimism back and re-engage them. Another topic I wanted to talk to you about is fairness. So, um, we are somehow inherently programmed to, to, uh, um, understand fairness and perceive it, um, very strongly. It doesn't matter if you have, uh, two children and, you know, yeah. the father or the mother, um, gives one candy and doesn't to the other. Um, but especially at the workplace, if uh, fairness is, is not there, if, if a coworker feels like, um, you know, unfairly, um, somebody has been promoted, etc. these kind of things. Um, and I think you also did quite a lot of work in, in this field. Uh, what, was, what was the thing that you found out about fairness? Well, fairness is really interesting because people can get used to lots of different kinds of rules. And so we know that cross-culturally, some societies, what, mean, what it means to be fair is to be meritocratic. You did more work, you get more outcome. In other societies, what it means is everybody gets the same. 
And in still other societies, what it means is maybe the oldest person gets the most or men get more than women or whatever the rules might be. What's interesting is it so people are capable of accepting lots of systems as fair. But what they don't like is when whatever those rules are have been violated. And, and underlying all those rules is basically a system whereby uh, even if it doesn't benefit me today in the long run, it will benefit me. So if older people get it, well, then eventually I'll be older and, and my yeah. time will come due. The, we do know that when there's other systems like gender or ethnic-based systems, there, there's a lot more likely to be resistance because, of course, you can't change your gender or ethnicity and then you won't it won't work out for you in the long run. But if you look at those cases where it will, which is almost all of the cases that we have, um, what you can see is that people really resist relative discrepancies. So, and, and they do so in counterintuitive ways. So imagine that I showed up at your workplace and I said, hey, great news. Um, you guys are doing super work. I'm going to give you all a 10% raise effective immediately. You'd all be really delighted and say, wow, this is so great. I'm so happy. And then you're, you're going home and you stop for coffee with the friend who works on the floor above you. And he goes, oh, did you hear? We all got 20% raises. And you're like, what? We only got 10% raises. This is terrible. And immediately your, your elation at, at, at such a good outcome will be soured. And you'll think this is utterly unfair. You'll be dissatisfied even though you're better off than you used to be. And that seems so counterintuitive. Why would people do that? But it actually makes perfect sense if you think back on our ancestral world where basically all that really mattered was how you compare to those around you, at least when it comes to the mating game. So if you want to attract a partner, you have to be at least as good as everybody else and ideally, ideally a little bit better on some domains. But if other people get more than you do, even if you get more than you had before, if they get still more, well, then they're passing you up. And so this really bothers us. We don't recognize it's linked to this sort of sexual selection idea of Darwin's, this notion that we need to be chosen by members of the other sex to be partners. But that's the fundamental orientation, that if we fall behind members of our group, even if we were satisfied with what we had before, when you find out that the hospital down the road got a bigger raise than your hospital did, or when you find out they have better working conditions, suddenly you'll be dissatisfied with something that was just fine before. And it's that relativity that, that links back to our evolutionary history and that can play such an important role in humans and in other animals as well, and whether we regard something as fair. So it's all about comparison. It's not about the yeah. logical, mathematical um, standpoint of view that I just have 10% more perfect, but it's about, hey, the other guy got more than yeah. I did, not good for me. Um, Unfortunately in, in, so. In comparison. Okay. I still remember um, you know, a video of you explaining, um, I think it was also something around fairness, primates, I don't know which, which kind of primates yeah. it was, and it was about cucumber and then orange slice. Yeah, that yeah. was also, that well, was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a wonderful work. That's by Franz Duwall and um, Sarah Brosnan, mm -hmm. and they um, they trained uh, uh, capuchin monkeys to return a stone to them for a cucumber, and the capuchins obviously regarded that as fair because they learned how to do it. But then they started rewarding another monkey with a grape, which they prefer, and the capuchins were immediately upset. Like, I'm not doing this for a cucumber if he's getting paid a grape. Although it's the exact same thing, right? They were happy just a moment ago to do it for a cucumber. And so it's the same basic principle that we can't allow ourselves to fall behind. And so it just it bothers us inside deeply when we think we're being treated unfairly in this manner. I think this is also a very important um, information for any kind of management. If they are thinking about how to reward people, that they take this into account that you know, rewards yeah. will, will always will be, will be compared to each other. But last, last topic, um, self-regulation and self-control. Now, um, 
I think a lot of people know that these executive functions are, you know, imperative for our lives. They, they you know, predict a lot of uh, things like success later on in work or, or in school. Um, of course, it's always, uh, uh, you know, it's uh, often it's beneficial not to follow the impulses that we have, <laughs> especially if you're, you know, in an affect, if you're angry or anything. Can you tell us, you know, uh, something funny or interesting about self-control and, and uh, these executive functions? Well, self-regulation is a super important process. It, it, um, it matters far more than we think it does. So, for example, most of the literature suggests that self-regulation is a better predictor of school success than IQ. So how smart you are seems to be, at least in some ways, even less important than your, than your ability to control yourself and put aside your short-term goals in order to pursue your long-term goals. People who are good at that are, are um, much more successful. What's interesting, though, is that you, you can think of self-regulation or self-control as something like two forces inside you, right? Mm -hmm. You've got those, those sort of early primitive forces for uh, food or aggression or sex that are pushing you forward. And then you've got somebody pulling the reins and trying to stop those horses from taking you where you don't want to go. And I think for a long time, we thought that people who are good at self-regulation are just really strong with the reins. They can really pull those horses back and prevent themselves from doing what they don't want to do. But somewhat surprisingly, what the research literature is showing us is that they're no better at resisting temptation than anybody else's. Mm -hmm. What they're really better about doing is avoiding temptation. And so if, if you're struggling with your diet, the people who are really good at, at fighting that um, battle over the long term are the ones who never buy the chocolate cake in the first place because they know full well if that thing's in my fridge – Every, the, by the fifth time I open up my refrigerator in order to get out an apple or something I should be eating, I will resist. I won't be able to resist the temptation anymore, and I'm going to take the cake. And so I just don't want it in the house. I don't want alcohol. I don't want whatever the temptation might be. If you're tempted to have affairs, I won't go to the conference without my partner. Whatever the whatever your temptation is, they're really good at just avoiding it because. It's a lot easier to avoid in the first place, to never buy the cake, than it is to keep not eating it day after day when it's sitting there in your refrigerator. So and so when we look at... It, it's more yeah. of... of um, it sounds more like they're better at planning and controlling the yeah. environment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And, and we didn't expect that. Mm -hmm. We thought that they would just have this iron-willed self-control. But it makes sense. And in fact, if you look back at one of the most famous experiments ever conducted on self-regulation, it was by Walter Michel on small children back in the Is it uh, the 60s marshmallow experiment? Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes that's, the, that's right. And what's amazing about those studies, if you watch the original videotapes, these children are given a marshmallow and they're told, you can eat this now, but if you wait till I come back, you can have two. And of course, everybody wants two when they're little, right? Two just seems so much better. And so they go, no, that's okay. I'll wait. And then Michelle times them to see how long they could wait. Well, if you watch the videotapes, you can tell the kids were going to succeed and the kids were going to fail because the kids were going to fail, pick up the marshmallow in their hands. They look at it. They smell it. They, 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 it gets so close that they can't resist Playing it Playing with fire, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The kids are going to succeed. They turn their back on the marshmallow. They sing themselves a song. They distract themselves. So they're avoiding temptation. They're not resisting it. Nobody's good at resisting it, just staring at this marshmallow and not eating it. But some kids are much better putting the marshmallow out of their mind than other kids are. And they're the ones who are successful in the moment. And what's so fascinating is it turns out when you wait 15 years, they're also more likely to get admitted to university and these kinds of things. So they're also more successful in the long term. Bill, thank you very much for this wonderful uh, and funny closing, closing topic. It was a pleasure to have you on my program. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. 
This was the voice of medicine. Make sure you tune in next time and take care. This was the voice of medicine. Make sure you tune in next time and take care.